So I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 13. So if you have Bibles, feel free to look at it or it'll be on the screen. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came on David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we've opened these scriptures now, we open our hearts to you. Send your Holy Spirit. That for each of us, we would start, and we would hear your voice. Pray, Lord, for clarity, that each of us would know what you're saying. And I pray you'd give us courage that we'd know what to do. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Today we're beginning a new sermon series on David. Not David Clegg, that's David Clegg down there. Different David, 
David in the Bible, King David. And why are we doing this? Well, happy Christmas. Hope you have a great Christmas. Turkeys, perhaps, Brussels sprouts, presents, all this stuff. But also, I really hope you worship Jesus this Christmas. I hope you learn something new and, and your heart is lifted as we remember that God became one of us. I hope you have a happy Christmas. Now, the thing with Christmas is that when we read the scriptures at services and we sing carols, we hear about this guy, David, all the time, King David. So in the great Luke reading from chapter 2, today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. And think about the carols. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. O come, thou key of David, come, once in royal David's city. We sing about his dad, Jesse. And in Hark the Herald, we sing about his hometown, Bethlehem, a little town of Bethlehem. That's another one. We can go through them all. He's in most of them. So why are we singing about his hometown and, and his dad? Well, uh, that's why we're looking at this series. I want you to understand why David's so important. I want us to wrestle with this character from the Old Testament, that we would better see why his story and how his story is fulfilled in Jesus at Christmas. You see, there are at least 54 references in the New Testament to David, weighty references. Normally his name placed alongside Jesus. In understanding something about David, I think we'll see freshly something about Jesus. That's the first reason. Secondly, King Charles III. After 70 years and 214 days, we have a king in this country. Questions are going to be asked about that as we move towards the coronation. And, and I hope in, in looking at King David and seeing the messy reality of human politics, of how God and humans relate particularly, I hope this series sends us outwards and our hearts into prayer for our nation at this time as we uh, ourselves come to terms with King Charles III. And thirdly, reality. I think there's something deeply real about the story of David. It's a real life, a real God and a real hope. A real life. Well, David's a remarkable, it's a remarkable story. It's about 66 chapters of the Old Testament that are, are given over to David's life. There's no biography like it from the ancient world, as long or as detailed or as psychologically revealing. It's a real life. And as Eugene Peterson says about David uh, in the scriptures, it's not an ideal life, but it's an actual life. It's not an ideal life, but it's an actual life. He's emphatically human. We get a sense of his character, the good parts, his humility, his devotion to God. From 50% of the Psalms are attributed to him. You get his inner workings, his inner thoughts. You see the great military and political leader, how he led Israel to prosperity, one unified kingdom. But what is truly remarkable about this ancient biography is that it records all his horrendous mistakes. And there are horrendous mistakes. David's failures, the many, many failures, painstakingly recorded. This week, I finally finished the book Outrun. That was my wife's actually, but uh, Lulu didn't want me to, to finish it until she'd finished it. So I've been waiting to catch up, but she's been slowly marinating it. And that runs an incredible story. Amy Liprot, who, who it's actually set half in East London, and half in the Hebrides. And her story is powerful because she's real about the messy parts of her life. That's why it's so compelling. That's why I kept saying, Lulu, read another chapter, read another chapter. Because she's been real about what's going on. And, and this last week, I've come across two 
cases of individuals talking about Christianity in public. And they were both really compelling. Did you see the Stormzy interview, Louis Theroux? Yep. Few, maybe? Watch it, I play it, I play it. Louis Theroux, I mean, what a man, amazing. But the combination of them is, is, is actually stunning. It's an incredible interview. But what's compelling about Stormzy and the calls of Stormzy for Prime Minister, they are happening. What's so compelling about him is that he's real about life. He's real about the messy parts and he talks about faith in a gritty, real way. He's real about his failures. The other was Bono. I don't know if you saw the interview with him this week talking about grief and the way that's formed his life and the things that he's got, got wrong. What's compelling about these accounts of faith, what was compelling about Outrun, is when you see humanity, when you see the reality of life, the ups, but, but even more so the downs. We know how to connect with people in their vulnerability. There are parts of David's life that are worth copying and many parts which aren't. But it is the encounter of a, with a real life and, and the real life reveals a real God, a God whose determination to bless is greater than David's failures. And as well as a real life and a real God, it's a real hope because David's hope is revealed to be not in himself, but God. Beyond himself, he has a real hope. You see, it's really hard work reading the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever done it. It's not all easy. You're having to go back to the Iron Age. You're reaching back into a time that seems odd, scary, and at points downright bad. Reaching back into those words is scary, but these words also reach forward to us. They reach forward to us because they're fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus sends his spirit into the church. David actually reaches forward to us and means something to us now. Okay, so uh, before we get down into chapter 16, which we just heard read, let me just give you a little bit of a recap. The story so far is really about humanity and God trying to work together with humanity's failings. And God chooses this people to represent him. But it doesn't go well. And one writer calls it, the people, says the people were on a long drift from God. Repeated story of, 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 of failure. The previous book is called Judges, which is very judgy, actually, if you read it. It's quite full on, very moralistic, very sincere. But the people are just in chaos. Leadership is in catastrophe. It's a period of moral chaos, chaos that showed Israel's need for good leaders, but the reality of their bad leaders. And so we arrive in the book of 1 Samuel, where three characters dominate the structure. There's Samuel, the great prophet of Israel. Saul, the first king. We see the rise and the fall of Saul, and then the rise and the half-fall of King David. Samuel is the one bright light of godly leadership in the nation. He's feared and revered, but his sons didn't follow in his footsteps. In fact, his, his sons are total scallywags. They're, they're awful. If you read the first chapters of, of 1 Samuel, his sons are nightmares. So the spiritual future of the nation looks pretty bad. People recognise they're in a leadership crisis, so they do the anti-American thing. They ask for a king. Americans famously not so keen on that idea, but they, they ask for a king. They see this chaos, they see this crisis of leadership and say, can we be like the other nations and have a king? And Samuel says, bad idea that we put one of us, messed up people like you and me, that we put one in charge with so much power, not a good idea. But the people get a king and they get King Saul, who seems like an obvious choice. He says he's head and shoulders above the rest. He's tall, he's handsome, he's gifted. If you're going to have a king, why not pick Saul? And the story of Saul highlights the crucible of leadership, that good looks and gifts aren't enough. 
because his character is lacking. He's proud and he's paranoid, a terrible combination when you, when you put power in the middle of that. And so Samuel comes to Saul after his failings, and in chapter 13, Samuel delivers this news, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. So God sends Samuel to tell Saul, it's coming to an end, the game's over, but there is one who I've picked who's, out of, who's after my own heart, which leads us up to where we began. Verse 1 of chapter 16. So uh, the Lord says to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. To Samuel, there would have seemed like no hope. His sons forsaken the faithful path. Saul, the great hope, has failed. And now God says, go to this strange town. Meet a strange man he doesn't know called Jesse and anoint one of his sons as king. Looks like there's no hope in the nation, but God is still working. You see, God is always painting on a bigger canvas than the one that we're imagining. And the key here is Samuel's obedience. Many of us probably ask questions. I ask questions all the time. Lord, what are you doing in this world? What are you doing? So many hopes and dreams, and even for this church, so many hopes and dreams, and sometimes it just feels like things are moving slowly. Lord, what are you doing? Samuel fills his horn and goes on his way. Great verse there. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Extraordinary. Imagine that on your tombstone. And some of you full of hope, full of passion, full of power in the past, and you're daunted by the present. And I would say, fill your horn with oil again. Because <laughs> God has something for you to do. He's painting on a bigger canvas. Get ready. Where are you going to go with your jar of oil? Where will the God of Israel lead you? So he gets to Bethlehem. When they arrived, it's verse 6. If we can have it on the screen, that'd be great. They... When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before us. I don't know who you think of in that category, in the Eliab category. There was a guy, I did a funeral recently, and the, the funeral director, the, sort of the main boss man, he, he grew up in Ghana and was a remarkable athlete there and spent much of his life training basketball and athletics in, in America. I think he was a bit older than me, but he kind of looked ageless. And he was taller than me and just had the kind of presence, did you see him? He had the kind of presence, just glided in and everyone went, wow. <laughs> like he just was physically perfect. And he, he had his suits and he had his hat on. He commanded, he was doing the right job actually, because he commanded such authority. Everyone looked at him, mesmerized. That's Eliab whoever you're thinking of in that category. But, but Samuel should have learnt the lesson with Saul that looks are not to be trusted with such things. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him, says God. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then they go through the next seven. There. And Samuel's confused trying with everything he can to be obedient. 
but more and more it must have gone on confusing. Lord, what are you doing? And so he says, is there another son? And Jesse says, yes, the youngest. And that is a euphemism. The word in the vernacular there is the runt. There is a runt. I've got a young son. He's tending the sheep. And so they come to David and the Lord says, rise and anoint him. This is the one, the unlikely one, the one physically not suitable. Eliab, the good-looking one. wonder who Eliabs you can think of in your life. Some of us have spent most of our lives stuck in the mirror, not seeing ourselves, but seeing the Eliab we think we must be. Have you ever wished that you were differently, different to how you are physically? Have you ever looked in the mirror and hated everything that you see? Too old, too young, too small, too big. Your skin's the wrong colour, your accent is wrong, you're just wrong. Growing up size was so key. I don't think it's got any better with Instagram and smartphones, but I remember the, the, the incredibly nasty masculine culture I grew up in where if you weren't physically big, you were nothing. You were worthless. If you were the smallest, you were worthy of abuse, and that's it. And that was only topped by the incredibly, even worse, toxic feminine culture I grew up in. As if your body didn't look a certain way, you were also worthless and nothing. If you weren't thin enough, you didn't count. Now, all of these things are not God's agenda. But we have to come into orbit and align and literally smash the mirrors because what we can hear everywhere we go is that really, if you don't look right, if you don't look a certain way, you don't count. We have to come into orbit and hear afresh God's voice. He works in a different way. He looks at the heart and not the outward appearance. For some of us, we need a whole new imagination for ourselves. I think corporately we need a new imagination for us as a church because it's a different tune that God is singing here. So we need to sing it as a church. We need to demonstrate a different value on physical appearance goes beyond physical appearance though, it goes to behaviour. This point of God looking at the heart is incredibly good news and it's really bad news. It's good news because you don't need to fake it. You don't need to pretend. God sees your heart. God knows your heart. You don't need to pretend. You can be real. It's exhausting to pretend and you can stop. Here's the bad news. You can't pretend. <laughs> God knows your heart. You can't trick him. And this should be a place where our hearts are real and honest and open to God and each other. And our physical appearance, our outward behaviour that we could trick others, we let it go. Because we can't cheat God. Let's not cheat one another. God picks unlikely people like David, the overlooked and with them, he does unlikely things. And we'll look next week at the unlikely victories in David's life. Unlikely mercy, an unlikely king. 
I want to look at what formed David. Earlier on, after Saul, we read it earlier, Saul has failed, and when Samuel gives that prophecy that Saul's line will not continue back in, in chapter 13, he says that I have sought out one who is after my own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. I've sought out one who is after my heart. And Psalm 78 gives us an indicator into this even further. It says, he has, he chases about David a psalm at the very end of a long psalm, in fact, because this is verse 70. It's a very long psalm. And, and it goes like this. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. He was a good king because he was a good shepherd. What he learned on the hillside is key for what made him an unlikely king. Just three quick things. He learned courage from solitude. In the next chapter, next week, we'll look at how he wants to fight in a certain way because of what he learned being a shepherd. Protecting his sheep, he fought bears and lions. And he learned that confidence with no supporting army, no armour, just himself. He faced himself and learned courage in solitude. Secondly, humility from service. Keeping the sheep was the hardest and least glamorous. I've actually worked with sheep. Anyone worked with sheep? They're dumb, aren't they? Anyone? No, they're really stupid. They're genuinely like the worst animals. They don't do anything that you say. They're, they're incredibly self-hurtful. They don't even think. They, I remember working with a blind sheep, which was even worse. She would always fall off cliffs. Doris, she was called. Uh, bless Doris, wherever she is now. Probably a Lamberger somewhere. Anyway. The worst job, hardest and least glamorous, the one you give to the runt. The other sons, as you'll see there, for the army, but David's not there yet. He's the runt. He's out for the sheep. Dangerous as well. I remember a soldier had seen a lot of active duty. He said the worst part of being a soldier is the combination between being boring and dangerous. You're bored for just most of the time, and every now and again, shells will start falling, and it's incredibly dangerous. That's what it would be like. Never really relaxed. At any moment, danger for your sheep. But most of the time, incredibly boring, uncomfortable, hot in the day, freezing at night. And in that place of service, he considered himself complete, doing what he needed to do. And that, that's how you get humility. Content with what you have. He had a humility that marked him out as a king that he learned on the hillside. Courage that came from solitude, humility from service, and worship from wonder, because on the hillside, his heart learned to praise God. So when he wrote the Psalms, that you might know he got taken into, into Saul's service and played, played the songs and many of the Psalms attributed, but he learned to do that on the hillside. As it says in one of them, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. He learned to worship God on the hillside, not in the palace, not in the boardroom, not preaching in church. God didn't anoint him king and then give him a heart for worship. God looked for the stupidly reckless, mad kid out on the hillside, bearing his heart before God and said, that, that, that's a heart that could be king. Worship from wonder. 
when nobody was looking. No responsibility, no affirmation from others, just raw worship. And if we want a heart for worship, what we do together when we gather like this shouldn't be the sum total of our worship. Our hearts for worship are cultivated in uh, obscurity, in the monotony of every day. And it's key for some of us. Some of us, years and, and, and life and London can sap us from what we were as teenagers. We can look back and think, wow, that was just, you know, youthful. No, no, that was a heart for worship. Some of us need to recover our hearts for worship. We, we express it together, but we learn it and we perfect it alone. And lastly, I just want to look at anointing. So in verse 12, so he sent, let's go from just towards the end of verse 12. When he saw David, the Lord said, rise and anoint him, this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. took the horn of oil and poured it all over David. Whilst David was still smelling of sheep, while his brother's faces were aghast, while Samuel himself surprised, but still obedient, David, the runt of the family, the shepherd boy, was anointed king of the nation. And this oil... The oil that Samuel would have used would have let off a perfume that even outside would have filled the whole space. David would have stank for weeks. The awkward shame almost of his brothers, of, of this one was anointed king. Extraordinary moment. Anointing means setting apart. It's God's power for God's purposes. Think of it, I mean, it's a bit of a brutal image, but think of it like a, a missile with, with a guided system. It's not just God's power generally, it's God's power with a particular location, a particular purpose. The oil is a symbol of what God is doing. It says the Spirit came upon him powerfully, in some translations it rushed towards him. That's really what the, way, the Spirit of God rushed towards David. Do you rush goalkeepers? Anyone? Netball, football, I don't know what you played to get hockey yet. Everyone remember, it was, it was, do you remember it was, a, it was like a before you, well for me, for football, you sort of, any boys get together and you sort of, is it rush goalkeepers? It was like a decision you made before you went into the game. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But it basically means you can leave your goal and, and you can join the game or you, have to, you can run back to your goal and it, it felt like a sort of daily part. Yeah, any, anyone, am I by myself completely? So yeah, there's a few, thank you, yeah, yeah, there's a few, they're coming out now, just leaving me hanging for a while. Well, the Spirit of God rushed towards David and from that day continued to rush because he was set apart for a purpose, as shocking and difficult as it was for his brothers to comprehend. The prophet of the, the nation had anointed him king of Israel. And it's the church's gift to be anointed. It's the church's inheritance to receive the anointing of Jesus. For you and I to receive what Jesus has for us. His power for a purpose in the world. 
for us together and us as individuals to receive the power of God for purpose in this world. Because a thousand years or so after this story, there was another nobody who lived in Bethlehem from an obscure family, but a family that descended from David. There was nothing significant at all about his appearance. He operated in obscurity, working a normal job for 30 years. He was anointed from birth with the Holy Spirit, God's power for God's purpose. And he would rise up to be a king, an unlikely king. But he wouldn't fall or falter like David or Saul. He would stay true the course. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. He fulfills the hope of David and overcomes the failures of David. The prophecies go on at the end of David's life. It says, there will be one in 2 Samuel 7 who will succeed you and he will come from your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then as the Old Testament goes on, it becomes more and more pregnant with this idea of the anointed one. The word is Messiah. There will be one who will set things right. There will be one who will come like David, but, but more than David, without the failings. And he will be called the Messiah. There will be no end to his reign. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. It says in Isaiah, as Lulu read earlier, the spirit of the sovereign Lord will be upon this one proclaim good news for the captives. Today's passage is haunted by the future king, by Jesus, Mary's boy. And at his birth, remember the controversy because we see the frailty face to face with King Herod of of the kings of this world. King Herod, who even wanted to kill children, who was so fragile in power. But the, but the Magi, the travellers from the east came and brought gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. Gold, the sign of his earthly power, frankincense. Frankincense was involved in worship. It was a sign of his divinity and myrrh. Well, myrrh, well, myrrh was used at death. You see, King Jesus was coronated on the cross. His crown was of thorns. His path to power was through suffering love and he rose again the king of the whole world he is the anointed one but he shares his anointing with his friends the oil is a symbol of God's presence with you and I and in a moment we're going to pray for one another and each of you as we worship I'll invite you if you would like to to go there's going to be two people over here you can still go to the loos by the way don't feel you can't go to the loos you can just sort of squeeze past them and there'll be two people at the back and what, what they're going to do is they're going to use this oil or I think some other oil they've already prepared it it's the same oil and they're going to make the sign of the cross on your forehead and that means that you can be marked with the, the Messiah because if you've ever wondered what the word Christ means, it's not Jesus' last name. It's just the Greek word for Messiah, for anointed one. He is the anointed one. And we, the church, get to share in his anointing. 
And when our friends make the sign of the cross on your forehead, it's a way for you to step in and say, I want, no matter what people think of me, no matter what I think of myself from the outward, I want my heart to be set apart for God's purpose in this world, so I need his power. The message of the life of David isn't to look at the life of David, but to look through the life of David to the one to which his life points, and therefore for us all to be glad at Christmas, to rejoice in who Jesus is, the true King, who will save his people from their sins. So God looks at your heart, and that's great news. You don't have to fake it, but it's bad news. You can't fake it. God knows what's going on. He cares far beyond what the world cares about physical appearance, so who you really are at the centre. Why pretend tonight? He wants to form you to find a deep place of courageous action from the centre. Humility through service. Worship from the wonder of the world around us. And he wants to anoint you tonight to set you apart for a particular purpose and power. He calls us often to faithful living in obscurity. He calls us to be like Samuel, who went forward with his horn full of oil, not knowing what the purpose was fully for. He wants us to be vessels ready ready to receive him. So would you stand? I'm going to lead us in a short time of prayer. And then Lulu and, and the others will come and lead us in two songs of worship. And during this time, whenever you would like to, you can just nip out. And I recommend as many of you do as you can, you'll see there are four people with oil. And just go, and you don't need to be there for very long, or you can be there for a while, and they'll pray for you. They'll make the sign of the cross in your forehead. And just try and hang on now into your heart of what it is that perhaps God has been speaking to you about as I've been sharing. Come, Holy Spirit. May this church, may our lives be marked by your presence as, as fragrant oil. Pours down a head, covers a whole body and leaves it stinking for weeks. May our lives... Our normal frail human bodies carry your power. Just in the silence, I wonder, just in the physical appearance, maybe there is an Eliab, maybe there's someone in particular that, that sits in the mirror rather than yourself, someone you feel you should be. I encourage you just in the quietness, just in your own heart, just to forgive them and then mentally smash the mirror. Receive the Holy Spirit.